I didn't stop you. Good morning. I have been asked by the uh, Christians in Zhutomir and in Irpin, Ukraine, to send you their greetings today. They were meeting together today. That's already happened, you realize. They're several hours ahead of us. And um, the folks from Zhutomir were traveling the 100 miles or so over to Irpin to worship with them today and have a time of fellowship. You know, they amaze me because I would think that in the circumstances they are in, in the war zone, that they probably wouldn't move about any if they didn't have to. But they are constantly going back and forth from Rivna to Zhutomir and Zhutomir to Rivna and to Irpin and Irpin to all these other places and having fellowship together because it means so much to them. And the churches are growing and they are growing stronger in their faith. And uh, God is really blessing them in spite of this war. God is bigger than this war. And uh, he is proving that over and over again. So uh, they send their greetings to you today and uh, want you to know how much they love and appreciate this church and other churches here in the States uh, who are helping get them through this very, very difficult time. We're still able to get funds into them and they're still able to purchase the things that they need and that in itself is an act of God. And uh, we're just so thankful uh, for that and pray God's blessings on them. One commercial before I get started. Uh, this evening at 6, we're beginning a new uh, study here in the worship center for uh, the adult class on the subject of doubting, uh, growing our faith through doubting. Now, doubting itself is, of course, not a good thing, but it can be used by God for good. And there's not any of us who haven't been through those times, those moments when we have wondered, we've at least questioned, we've asked, we've not been sure, and what do we do with that? And how do we use our doubts to grow in faith in those times? So that's what we're going to begin talking about this evening at 6. And uh, if I hope that you will come. If you've never had a doubt, you don't need to come. <laughs> See all of you here at 6 o'clock. I'm going to do something I don't normally do. In fact, I don't remember ever having done this, but I spent a good bit of this week working on a carefully detailed outline of the text this morning, First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and uh, I just couldn't feel good about it all week. And this morning, as I was looking it over, I thought, this thing is so complicated, I'm not sure I understand it. <laughs> and, and that's not a good thing. Uh, so I'm going to put that aside. I don't have anything up here this morning except my electronic Bible, and I'm praying it doesn't die uh, or the battery go out or, you know, there's some kind of blip or something of that nature. Don't anybody touch anything electronic and interfere with my Bible. Um, I'm just going to take the, the, the text and work through it, I think, in a much more simplified manner than what I had intended to do. And actually, I want to go back to chapter 2 and verse 11 and start through it because there's no way to understand 3, 1 to 7 unless you get it in context. So that means I need you to have your Bible open with me. Starting in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, and we're just going to kind of work our way through this until we get down to 3, 1 through 7, and then we'll spend a couple of hours there, and then we'll be done. And, and you will be so relieved. You see the, the psychology there, when I only talk about an hour on that, then you'll, you'll be relieved. Chapter 2 and verse 11. 
Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Number one, we've got to be reminded that this is a letter written to sojourners and exiles, people who are not in their permanent home. That's you and me, just like it was these people. And these folks were undergoing some persecution and some hard times. Some of you may be undergoing persecution and hard times. But nevertheless, we are aliens and exiles. Now, what do aliens and exiles do? Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, that's our assignment as we are aliens and exiles making our way through this world to keep our conduct honorable. So honorable that when people speak evil against us, notice not if, but when they speak evil against us, they will see our good conduct and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the goal is to live such an honorable life that it, it can hardly be criticized, or at least cannot fairly be criticized. Now, what does that look like? Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. All right, number one, he says, if you're going to live an honorable life in the, before an unbelieving world, he says you need to submit yourself, to, you need to submit yourself in various ways. The first one he outlines is submitting ourselves to governing authorities. Now notice he does not say do that if the governing authorities are good. He just says do it. Remember who his governing authorities were. At the top of the food chain in his day was the Emperor Nero. So it does not matter whether it is good government or not. And by the way, I've been in various parts of the world and I've talked to people about their governments. Nobody likes their government, okay? I've never had anybody say, you know, we just love our government. We just love our governmental system. I was in South Korea one time, and uh, they were talking about something that happened the day before I got there. There was a fist fight in Parliament, and they were embarrassed about it. Just this past summer, we arrived in uh, Budapest, Hungary, and the taxi driver was saying, be sure to go see the parliament building. He said, now don't go see the parliament because they're a bunch of bums. <laughs> but go see the building. It's beautiful, and it is. Nobody likes their government. But notice he says, submission is a Christian attitude. Submission is a Christian conduct. And then he goes ahead and he applies that, when you get down uh, a little bit further, to servants and then he applies it to wives, and then he applies it to husbands. But first of all, look at what he says, uh, beginning in uh, verse um, see, 17, that we are to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, as we live as servants of God. And then he says servants, and he's talking here about slaves. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. And it doesn't make any difference, he says, whether they are good and kind and gentle or if they're overbearing and mean. He says submission is the way to go about it because it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if 
when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. It is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now watch this. For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He's not just talking to slaves. He's talking to the whole church. He's not just talking to the first century. He's talking to all of us. And here's what he says. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's our calling. Submission is something to which all of us have been called as followers of Jesus, as imitators of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus. That's the context in which we come to chapter 3 and verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. He's not picking on women here. Do you see that? He's not picking on women here. I know that this text is a hard one for a lot of women to hear. And one reason it is, is because it has been so abused and so badly misunderstood. It's been used at times to say that men have a God-given dominance over women just because they're men. All right? It's been used sometimes to justify abuse. It's been used sometimes to tell women that they should just take it, whatever it is that's dished out to them. That's their God-given role. That is not what this text says. This text is saying that all of us are to be in submission to one another. All of us are to be in submission to somebody. Submission is not an anti-Christian thing. It is a Christ-like thing. Why did Jesus come to earth? How did he come to earth? By submitting himself to God. And then he submitted himself to us by dying on the cross for our sins. And now we're called on to submit to one another. And part of that, not all of it, part of it is for wives to be subject to their own husbands. Now, notice that specifically in verse 1, he's concerned about Christian women who are married to non-Christian men. Because he says uh, to their own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. What's he concerned about? He's concerned about how this Christian wife lives her life in such a way that she can influence her husband toward the gospel and possibly win him to Christ. And notice he says that some do not obey the word, but they can still be one without words. That's what the NIV says. Now, let me point something out to you, too. If you're reading the King James Version or the American Standard Version, it says without the word, and that's not right. There is no definite article there in the Greek. He does not say people can be one without the word. Some have understood that to mean, well, people can be one without the gospel. That's absurd. Nobody can be one without the gospel. What did Paul say in Romans 1 verse 16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is what? The power of God 
for the salvation of everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. Nobody's one without the gospel. At some point, that pagan husband's got to be taught, all right? The problem is that in, the, in many cultures, it's not appropriate for the wife to do it. In many cultures, there's no way that a man is going to allow himself to be taught by his wife. Or in some cultures, even to be spoken to and urged to listen by his wife. Somebody else may have to do that. But what can she do? By her conduct, he says. By her conduct, she can so live in such a godly way that she shows, number one, that her newfound faith has not made her a rebel. Her newfound faith has not made her cast all conventions aside. Her newfound faith has not made her say, I am breaking free of you, and I don't have to submit myself to anybody. Her newfound faith says, I'm following the one who submitted himself to all in order to give eternal life. And I can and will submit myself to you in the hopes of leading you to the Lord. That's the specific circumstance that Peter is talking about. Now, some folks read this and say, you know, if Peter were writing that today, he wouldn't write that today. Does that make sense? If Peter were writing that today, he'd write something different. He wouldn't say that. All right, because it's culturally conditioned. And so we have to read it in a culturally conditioned way, understanding that that doesn't really apply anymore. I hope you see the danger in that when it comes to interpreting Scripture. It's awfully tempting to use that in a lot of situations when we come across something in the Bible we don't particularly like. And then we just say, well, I believe that's culturally conditioned. And that sounds good. And it sounds like we're being in-depth, and it sounds like we're being intellectual about it. So it's culturally conditioned, so I don't have to submit to it. But see, there's some problems with that. Number one, the Apostle Paul, in his passage like this, Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21, going through verse 33, says the same thing. He says that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the, of the church, uh, and he compares the relationship between husband and wife to that between Christ and the church. He does not compare it to cultural situations. He doesn't compare it to cultural situations. And he's not talking about circumstances where the, husband is a, uh, the wife is a believer and the husband is not. Not in Ephesians 5. And yet he says the same teaching <clears throat> about uh, submission. The other problem with it is, if we say that that part about the wives is culturally conditioned, how about the part about the men? Down in verse 7. So husbands then are not required, uh, that reasoning would say, to live with their wives in an understanding way or to show honor and respect to them. Nobody wants to say that. So we've got to be careful about saying this is culturally conditioned because it isn't. That's not the point. The point is that being submissive is a Christ-like thing. It is a Christian thing to do, not only for wives, but for everybody else. Notice that Peter says uh, there in verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, some folks have read that to say that women shouldn't get their hair done 
and they shouldn't wear makeup, and they shouldn't wear jewelry, okay? If that's the case, it also says they shouldn't wear clothes. <laughs> you see that? Okay, now don't anybody amen that, okay? But if that's the rationale, if he's, if he's forbidding doing anything to your hair, wearing any jewelry, he's forbidding wearing clothing. What's he talking about? He's talking about overdoing it. He's talking about letting that be your life. He's talking about letting that be your goal. Don't do that, he says. He says, don't, don't so focus on the external beauty that that's what your husband sees that you're all about. Let him see that, that hidden, that imperishable beauty that is an inner beauty, that is an inner strength. Let him see that. That's what will touch him. That's what will move him and turn him toward the gospel and make him open to uh, the gospel. And then he says there's good historical precedent for this. He says this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So he says there's good historical precedent for this kind of behavior. He says it's always been the way that godly women have conducted themselves. They've always conducted themselves in a way that was dignified and respectable and above all holy so that their husbands can see that. And in this case where he's talking to these women who are married to men who are not Christians, that that will help to motivate them to open their lives to the gospel. Now, understand too, this is not providing a justification for marrying outside of Christ. It's not providing a justification for that. The Bible clearly tells us that Christians ought to marry Christians, okay? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, don't I have the right to lead about a wife as do Peter and the rest of the apostles? That's the way our translations usually read. But what it really says is, do I not have the right to lead about a sister as wife? In other words, a Christian wife. He also tells Christian widows that if their husbands die, then they are free to be married to whomever they will, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. Okay, not just anybody, but somebody in the Lord. You know, Jesus taught us to put the, first, the kingdom first. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. It's going to be really hard to seek the kingdom first if you are tied to a man who isn't doing that and who doesn't want you to do it, okay? It's going to be really hard to seek the kingdom first. So this is not a justification for that. In the case that he's talking about, and this happened a lot in the early church, you had women who were not Christians when they married, and then they converted, and their husbands didn't. That's the kind of circumstance he's thinking about. You had a lot of people who were a part of arranged marriages. They didn't have any choice in choosing their mate, and maybe they were Christians, but, but their parents chose a non-Christian for them to marry, and they didn't have any say-so about it. Uh, and so they find themselves in this circumstance. That's the situation that Peter is talking about. But remember, comparing this to Ephesians 5, the idea of the husband being the head of the wife and the woman submitting to him and following his leadership in respect and love is a part of being a Christian wife. It's not, it's not limited culturally or not limited to those situations. 
where the woman uh, was not a Christian when they married. Then let's look at verse 7. Likewise. I want you to notice there's two likewises in this text. Verse 1 and verse 7. Likewise. See, that's what shows us that this is still talking about honorable conduct in the presence of the Gentiles. Likewise, you servants. Now he says, likewise, you wives. Now he says, likewise, you husbands. Husbands have an obligation responsibility to. You know, one of the things that set Christian teaching about marriage apart from anything that went before it, Jewish, pagan, or anything else, was the reciprocal responsibility of husbands and wives. In most cultures in the ancient world, all the burden was placed on the wife. She had all the responsibilities. The husband had none. He had all the rights. She had all the responsibilities. When Christ came, all that changed. When Christ came, all of that changed. And when Paul writes about it, he tells Christian husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, the problem is a lot of times men are not reading their own mail when they read that text. They're reading what, the, what Paul said to the women and, and saying to the women, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. What are we supposed to do, men, as Christian husbands? We are to love our wives with the same self-sacrificing love with which Jesus loved the church. Who's got the greater responsibility now? That's what we're supposed to do. And so Peter says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of Christ, of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, let's take that apart here for a minute. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What in the world does that mean? Literally, it says, live with your wives according to knowledge. Knowledge of what? Well, some people say knowledge of her, all right, understanding her, trying to get inside her head, be empathetic, be sympathetic uh, with her. Okay, that's valid, but I'm not sure that's what Peter's getting at. I think the understanding that he's talking about in this context is understanding our own responsibilities as Christian men. That's what we need to do. Husbands, live with your wives understanding the responsibilities that God has given you as a Christian husband to show honor, to show honor to your wife. You see, if she's expected to be uh, submissive to your leadership, then the expectation is that that submission is met with honor and respect. It's not met with dominance. It's not met with force. It's not met with swagger. It's met it's met with honor and with respect and with appreciation, he says. Bestowing honor on the woman as the weaker vessel. Weaker how? Weaker how? Two things I can think of. One is normally physically weaker. Not always, but normally. The other, though, uh, is socially. Because of what's expected of her. If she's expected to submit to you then it is all the more important that you not abuse that. It's all the more important that that be met with honor and with respect. Why? Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. All right, here's where it comes full circle. He says your wife 
if she's a Christian, is also your sister in Christ. She's also your sister in Christ. She is an heir with you of the grace of life. She's your spiritual equal. She has the same promises made to God by, uh, by God to her that you have. She has the same expectation of life everlasting that you have. She'll be given the same crown of life in eternity that you will be. And so he said, you live with her in that respectful and honorable way because you know that she is an heir with you of the grace of life. And then notice the last part there, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, fellas, here's where we need to listen up. I've known some Christian men. I don't know any in this congregation, but I've known some Christian men who treated their wives with such disrespect that I'm not sure God ever heard any of their prayers. Because I believe what Peter says is literally true. He says that if you don't treat your wife in the right way, your prayers are hindered. The word hindered here comes from a Greek term that literally means cut off. You see that? Your prayers are cut off. There is a barrier. There is a curtain that drops. And God is not going to hear what you have to say because you're perpetually living in relationship with your wife in a dishonorable way, in a dishonoring way. Your prayers will be hindered. Your prayers will be cut off. Nobody wants that. Nobody can afford that. If you want that relationship with God to continue the way it ought to be, honor, honor your wife. Respect her. Show her that honor that she deserves. Now, this wasn't part of the text, but look at verses 8 and 9 in conclusion. Finally, and that's what some of you are thinking, isn't it? <clears throat> Finally. I love it when the Bible writers say that because, you know, it doesn't really mean anything to them like it means to us. You know, if a speaker now says finally, we think, oh, good, he's almost through. Do you notice he's got, he's got two more chapters? <laughs> Paul does that in Philippians, and he's, he's got three. He says finally, you know, and then he goes three more chapters. So just sit back. You'll be okay. <laughs> finally, all of you, get that. See, he's bringing this full circle. He's talking to all of them. Christian submission is a responsibility of all of us. And now he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Called to what? Called to be like Jesus. Call to be like one though he was reviled and not reviled in return. Call to be like one though he was mistreated, did not threaten. But submitted himself to the will of the Father. And that's why you and I are here today, because he did. God does great and powerful things with submission. When we submit to one another, husbands and wives, when we submit to one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, when we submit to Christ, when we submit to God, when we submit our lives to the influence of his spirit, when we submit our lives to his word, God does great and powerful things. He blesses us. He blesses us. 
That's what he's offering you this morning is that blessing. But he expects your submission. Question is, are you willing to submit your life to God and confess his son and be baptized into him? If you haven't done that yet, that's where you get started. Then you're on, your, on the road to blessing. If you're ready to do it, come and tell us while we stand and sing. Oh, Lord, God, down with